the Holy Land once again uh, in the most comfortable way possible, just seated here uh, in this air-conditioned facility uh, so that we can pursue a little more what we've been doing in this series called Life Lessons from the Holy Land. We've tried to derive one particular life lesson from each of the places we're visiting. And tonight, I'd like for us to go to a place you know of. It's called Bethesda. Bethesda. It's an ancient place, and it consists uh, really of two pools of water. And the source of the water was rain and underground springs. If you were there today, and you surely could visit there today, Bethesda means house of grace or house of mercy. Uh, If you were there, uh, you would get to it probably through a gate called the Lion's Gate. But if you were there in the day of the Lord, you would get there more likely through a gate called the Sheep Gate. Because it was through that gate that uh, these animals, which were readied for sacrifice in the temple, which was very close to the pools of Bethesda, were being prepared for sacrifice. So that was the sheep gate then. We'll read about it in just a second, but it's the lion gate today. And it's uh, been verified by archaeologists, that is the biblical description of Bethesda, has been supported by archaeological finds. I always find that to be interesting and delightful, but totally unnecessary. See, if you're a Christian and are a temple of God's spirit, if he's taken up his residence in you, you know on an even deeper level than archaeology, (laughs) that Jesus is who he says he is and what he said is true. But anyway, they have found there in this place today uh, uh, the pools which are an exact reflection of the description of them as given in John's gospel. They're located through a beautiful church called the Church of St. Anne. Uh, Some of you, has anyone here been to the Church of St. Anne near Bethesda? Yeah, I was with you guys. Absolutely. We almost got thrown out because of you. (laughs) The Church of St. Anne was built by the Crusaders in the 12th century, but on top of a much older church built in the 4th century. And it is um, said to mark the traditional spot of the birth of Mary, the Lord's mother, Uh, Mary's mom was named Hannah or Hannah, and when we bring it into English, it's Anne, hence the Church of St. Anne. And what stands out in the mind of anyone who's visited there are the acoustics. They're so near perfect. John Mark, even I sound good there. Just to let you know, it's unbelievably beautiful. And you come in, and there might be a group of Americans singing Amazing Grace in English, and there might be a group of Russians who will then chime in in Russian, or a group from Africa in their language, and everyone is singing together. And it's just absolute, no sound system, no instrumentation, just the purity of voices praising God at the Church of St. Anne. It's quite a wonderful place to visit. Many people visited there before the Church of St. Anne. They came to the healing pools of Bethesda because it was popularly thought that the waters had some healing quality. 
And so many who were afflicted with all manner of diverse diseases came seeking to be healed. You can understand what's behind that. They wanted to be free of what had uh, for so long afflicted them. And they attributed the healing power to many false pagan gods. Now that's the sad thing of it all. Right there in the Holy Land, uh, in the presence of the Lord Jesus, still the capacity to heal was attributed to false gods. And the most uh, popular of them was probably a god called Asclepius. Asclepius was the pagan god of healing. And here's how he came to be. In Greek and Roman mythology, and you know that prevailed for centuries in human history, in Greek and Roman mythology, one of the gods, Apollo, fell in love with a woman named Coronis. And she became pregnant by Apollo, but was unfaithful to him, and so he killed her, but saved the baby who she was carrying, and that baby turned out to be this god, Asclepius. Uh, he, Asclepius, was uh, sent to a centaur, a centaur named Chiron, who taught him how to heal and even to prevent death using treatments, particularly involving water. Now, keeping that background in mind, I want to tell you about a real healing miracle. It's not fictional. It's not mythological. And it is recorded for us down to this very day in John's Gospel, John chapter 5. So I want to give you just a moment or two to find it if you have a Bible. And if you don't, we do for you right on the back of the seat in front of you. John chapter 5 is fairly easy to find. You make your way to the New Testament, and then you'll go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And John is going to give us an account of something that happened right here at the House of Mercy, Bethesda, where it was popularly believed that Asclepius was the god of healing and that he did it through water. Please keep all that in mind, and I think this text will make more sense to you, have more meaning to you. So John 5, verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews. Which one? We do not know. Perhaps Passover, but we cannot know for sure which of the pilgrim feasts of Israel is in view here. But there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus, of course, you know, in human form was Jewish, went up to Jerusalem. He went up because Jerusalem was elevated about 2,500 feet above sea level. And so he went up to Jerusalem during this particular feast. Now there is in Jerusalem, see here it is, by the sheep gate. Remember I mentioned it's the lion's gate today, it was the sheep gate then, there it is. Uh, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, or Bethesda, house of mercy. And it has five porticos, and lo and behold, as I mentioned, the archaeologists have found this very thing, five arched 
porticos right here at the pools of Bethesda. They found it, and they exist in this very day. And these were probably covered porches open at least on the side facing the water. In these porticos, porches, lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred up the water, and whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Verse 4 is an intriguing and interesting verse, uh, which has given rise to much discussion over the years. Uh, for our purposes tonight, I hope you permit me to skip it, <laughs> except for the reading of it here, uh, the bubbling of the waters, the angel coming down. Um, explain it. Well, I think things could be said of it, but as I say, that's not the point I want to make uh, tonight, so we're going to move beyond it, and uh, you might want to look into it yourself, what's in view there. The point is, the rule of the pool was everyone for himself. What a collection of needy people. And first come, first healed, apparently, was going on. And verse 5, a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. Think of it. Some of you here could really, really relate. This is a long-term chronic affliction, 38 years. How old this man is, we do not know. What we do know for sure is that he's been sick for 38 years. Actually, the text says a little more than that. It says, with reference to him, who had been 38 years in his sickness. You know, you could be afflicted by something emotional or uh, physical for so long that you actually come to be enveloped by it. It becomes you. Uh, it's a label sometimes. You have, you are, you have become. So he had come to be absorbed by his affliction over 38 years to such an extent that we wouldn't say he was sick. We would say, oh, no, he's in his sickness. That was his environment. Uh, he moved in and out of this environment of neediness and affliction. He knew nothing else about himself. He had no sense of his essential worth and value and identity. All he knew was, I'm in this for 38 years and can't get out of it. He's stuck. You see, he's living in the atmosphere of this particular ailment. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, wait just a second. Uh, Jesus saw him in the crowd. Can you envision this? It's uh, noisy, it's busy, it's crowded. There are sights and sounds and smells and all the rest. And people are jockeying for position. And somehow this Jesus managed to identify, pick out, and know something, everything, about one particular man there at the pools 
of Bethesda. How did Jesus know all about him? He wasn't even born in human form at the time. Remember, the Lord had 33 years of earthly ministry. Though we don't know how old this guy is, we know he's been sick for 38, so the Lord wasn't even born when this particular ailment took root in the man's life. How does this Jesus know all this? He must be God. Don't you get it? That's how nobody told him. Nobody said, Rabbi Jesus, Rabbi Jesus. Nobody tapped him on the shoulder and said, let me tell you about this guy. He knew. How did he know? Well, it's one of the attributes of God. He knows everything. He's omniscient. I have to tell you, that is one of the things that could be uh, the greatest source of terror for you if you don't know God and you're running from him. He knows where you are and he knows everything about you. Where are you going to go? But it's also one of the greatest sources of comfort if you're rightly related to him. He knows everything about you. He knows where it hurts. He knows what's going on. He's omniscient. And so this God addresses this man at the pools of Bethesda. And don't you see, it truly is, therefore, the house of grace. That transcendent deity would have taken on flesh in the form of Jesus, who is the anointed one, the Christ, and personally focus his attention, identify, designate, locate in the crowd this particular man and address him. The God-man addresses the man. Wow, this is really all of grace. It is Bethesda, the house of grace and mercy. And the Lord asks him, don't you think it's a rather unusual question? Do you wish to get well? If I was there, I don't know. I hope I wouldn't interrupt, but I have a tendency to. So I, I, I might have said, Lord, Lord, with all due respect, he does. Yeah, yeah, he wants to be better. Yeah. I mean, he's been going through this for 30 Lord, I know you're busy. Let me just help you out. Everyone wants to get better. Do they? No, they don't. And the Lord knew that. Getting well means change. If this guy got well, you know what it would mean? He has no source of income. The source of income he had been used to is to beg. Part of Judaism is to make sure that those who are needy amongst you receive alms. You know, alms for the poor, alms for the poor, and we call it a mitzvot, a good deed, to put some coins in the cup of a needy person. He might have made out fairly well, to tell you the truth. It's in Jerusalem. People are going up to the temple. Uh, they're making sacrifice to God. They're feeling guilty and ashamed, for sure. Uh, they would appease their conscience by offering some money to all of the blind, needy, lame, afflicted people at the pools of Bethesda. And if all of a sudden he was well, what's he going to do? Go back to school at the ripe old age of at least 38 What's he going to do? Study computer science all of a sudden? What's he going to? So I tell you the truth, the Lord is smarter than we are. You know what he knows? He knows that being made well means change. 
And he knows that a lot of us don't want to change. And you know why? Because we've gotten comfortable with the old and familiar. Even though the old and familiar is not good for us. Good night, 38 years in his sickness. But he's familiar with it. If all of a sudden he's out of it, then he's got to go over here. But he's never been here before. He doesn't know what this is all about. He doesn't know how to live well. He only knows how to live dependent and needy and afflicted and ill and hopeless. He doesn't know. And so don't be so sure that people want to be made well. Not necessarily. So the Lord asks that very potent question. And the sick man, verse 7, answered him, Sir... I have no men to put me into the pool. <laughs> he makes an excuse. I have nobody to put me in the pool when the water is so oh, sure I want to be made well, but I can't get down there. I have no one to carry me into the water when it's stirred up. And while I'm coming, and surely I'm coming to make the best effort possible, because of course I want to be made well. While I'm doing this, oh, someone gets there before me. Oh, well, that's the way it goes. You know what that is? Nonsense. That's what that is. That's nonsense. This is the whine and complaint of someone who's lost hope. This is the expression of someone who is playing the, uh, let's call it the yes, but game. Yes, I want to be made well, but someone gets it before me. See, he has to find out that the Lord Jesus is not limited to healing by water, as was Asclepius. You see what's going on here? And so the Lord Jesus says to him, verse 8, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. He bypasses the water entirely. Good night, he made water. He's superior to it. He's not subject to it. And so look what he tells the guy. The Lord Jesus tells this guy to get up and walk. He tells him to do the very thing he can't do. Why? Any real, lasting, authentic, genuine change in our individual lives, don't you agree, has to be produced by the Lord Jesus. Anything else, a self-help book here, a support group there. Look, I'm not knocking the stuff. I'm just telling you those are not the source of irreversible, eternal, real change. The Lord Jesus is the transformer. So he tells this guy to do what he can't do. And immediately, verse 9, immediately, the man became well, took up his pallet and began to walk. Wow. Hey, let me ask you a question. Why doesn't the Lord Jesus do that all the time? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> but I do know something about miracles, do you? Miracles are devices used by God to get us to think. to get us to think about the one who just performed the miracle. Miracles never, ever have any validity as a stand-alone item. The value and purpose of miracles is only as a sign corroborating the message of the miracle worker. 
Otherwise, it's just crass showmanship. You see a lot of that on so-called Christian TV. Crass showmanship. But there's no such thing in the Bible as an out-of-context miracle, something for its own sake. The miraculous works of God are always meant to corroborate the magnificent words of God. Always, always, always. So what does this miracle corroborate? Well, the Old Testament prophets told us of a time when Messiah would come. Lots of people read it, including Satan. And therefore, Satan uh, has many pretenders to the throne. <laughs> and so the uh, uh, Old Testament prophets said, here's how you'll know the real one from the false ones. When Messiah comes on the scene, the lame will leap for joy. It actually says that in the Old Testament. So you can see what the Lord Jesus did here is not whimsical, arbitrary, dramatic. It's confirmatory in healing this lame man. And in the lame man, immediately, not progressively, immediately. And by the way, it had nothing to do with his, the man's faith. It had everything to do with the Lord's power. When this lame man leapt for joy, he's fulfilling, don't you see, what the old prophets said. And everyone is forced to take note and think, oh, this Yeshua, the carpenter's son, could he be the long-awaited Messiah of whom our own prophets spoke? A miracle is an appeal to our thinking. It confirms God's message and me messenger. Now, there's something else going on here. I mentioned to you this false god, Asclepius. People thought he was the savior. He actually was considered to be the savior. Now, his symbol was a snake. Uh, we have it down to this very day in the medical profession, by the way. The symbol of Asclepius, the god of healing, was a snake. Why? Well, snakes shed their skin. And when they do so, they appear, in a sense, to be reborn. So what you have going on here in the symbol Asclepius chose was a kind of resurrection theme, a counterfeit of the real resurrection. But only Jesus really rose from the dead, not Asclepius, not anybody else except by his empowerment. Do you realize all other religious leaders are either dead or alive? Would you agree? All the world's religious leaders, those are the only two options, are either dead or alive. But the Lord Jesus is the only one who is alive from the dead. Can you see the difference? Categorically different. So what he's doing here is two things in this miracle. It's not arbitrary. Yes, he loves this man who was sick for 38 years, but there's more at stake than just his individual healing. Number one, it's to demonstrate that he, the Lord Jesus, is the one the prophets spoke of. And two, it's to demonstrate his supremacy over the false god Asclepius, considered to be Savior and Lord, but was not. 
Jesus is. And the healing miracle here at the pools of Bethesda is evidence of it. He doesn't need water or anything like that. He could just speak healing into this lame man's life, and there he is, able to leave his pallet behind and walk. So this was no arbitrary miracle. It was evidence of the fact that Jesus was the Messiah and that he is supreme over all other pretenders to the throne. Now, there's a phrase at the end of verse 9 that I've left out until now. Can you see it? It says, now, it was the Sabbath on that day. The day of this healing. It says it was the Sabbath on that day. The Sabbath was a gift given by God to man, meant to be a joyous day and a time of rejoicing. But our rabbis out of concern for protecting the holiness and sanctity of the day, surrounded it with a hedge of man-made laws. And so they came up with so many laws and requirements for the correct observance of the Sabbath that it ceased to be a joyous time and came to be a burden. It's religion, folks. Now, this one is mine, but you got your own. And sometimes religion uh, can so distract us from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ that even though the intent behind religious stipulations may be okay, it becomes a terrible, terrible burden. I remember, for instance, on the day of my bar mitzvah, I might have shared this with you, that's when a kid is 13, in New York, uh, my grandmother was an Orthodox Jew and would not ride, therefore, in a car on the Sabbath. Riding is not permitted. Well, it turned out um, my birthday is in November, and we had a hailstorm in upstate New York during my bar mitzvah day. But there went my grandmother and I, arm in arm, she then an elderly lady, being pelted by hail on the way to the synagogue so as to have my bar mitzvah. Good night. I was bleeding and bruised. <laughs> I don't know how my grandmother survived it. And I look back on it now and I say, how goofy can you be? Ain't <laughs> nothing in the Bible that tells you to do stuff like that. It's man-made religion. Don't be hard on mine. You got your own. So, so one of the other stipulations about the Sabbath the rabbis came up with is that you couldn't do any carrying. You can't carry things on the Sabbath. Well, wait a second. This guy who was just healed took up his pallet, did he not? So what he did is flying in the face of rabbinical law regarding the Sabbath. Oh, I wish I was there so I could have respectfully said, Lord Jesus, again, I don't mean to interrupt, but... You know, I, let me tell you about what these rabbis are into, what they expect. This healing thing is major cool. I mean, wow, I haven't seen that done in a long time. That is really good how you're able to pull that off. But, you know, the carrying the pallet thing, it's going to get all the rabbis really, really hot and bothered. So I just want to fill you in. And then maybe the Lord Jesus would say, oh, no. I should have came yesterday. <laughs> but that can't be the case, could it? 
because he's all-knowing. All he's omniscient. He knows everything. Why in the world then did he perform this uh, confirmatory miracle on the Sabbath? Uh, he knew it would cause trouble with the religious establishment, and that's the point. Do you know there's a conflict between religion and personal relationship with the Lord Jesus? They don't meld together. They're oil and water. The world is more religious than ever before and probably more anti-God than ever before. I'm not impressed by somebody dressed up in all kinds of clerical garb and who knows what. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff you can wear today and all the... <laughs> it's just religious stuff. The two are in conflict. Which is it? Is it man-made religion? Oh... Or is it a personal relationship with the Savior? Is it man-made religion, your attempt to reach up to him? Or is it your recognition that you can't get there? So he extended himself from on high to you and me. Which is it? And so the Lord Jesus didn't want anyone to think for one minute that you could have a little bit of this, a little bit. I mean, which is it? Choose who you'll serve. Is it your religious tradition or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? He knew it would be costly and he said, let's get to it right now on the day of your healing, Mr. Lame Man. And so this took place on, on the Sabbath day. It was a deliberate intent by the Lord to oppose man-made, harsh man-made religious traditions because he wanted this man here and he wanted us to be free from false and burdensome man-made religious tradition. Well, folks, this man, the one who's uh, a key character in our story here, for all practical purposes, was probably invisible. I mean, he's lost in the shuffle of the crowd. He's uh, lost in the atmosphere of his sickness, he is lost in the burdensome stipulations of his own religion, he might as well have been invisible. But the God of all grace came to Bethesda, the house of grace, and rescued this man from all of that lostness. And so the Lord Jesus located him in the crowd and lifted him from hopelessness and liberated him from his own religion. So what is a life lesson we could derive from our visit to Bethesda? Uh, here is, I think, a good one. Jesus, if you're a Christian, I'm only speaking to Christians, others, thanks for coming, this doesn't apply to you yet. If you're a Christian, Jesus saved you and you are no longer lost in the crowd, in a religion, or in your pain. He has singled you out. He knows you by name. He numbers the hair on your head. Your name is inscribed in his book of life. He knows the days he has ordained for you, when as yet there was not one of them. You cannot run from his presence nor his spirit. He is always with you. His eye is upon you. He loves you. He saved you. You'll never be lost in man-made religion again if you're truly saved. He saved you. You'll never be lost in the crowd of life. 
You'll never be lost in your pain. Oh, God, don't you know? Yeah, he knows. He knows. Yeah, he knows. You'll never be alone again. You'll never be lost in it anymore. I think it's great to be a Christian. I don't want to be lost in the crowd. You know, my air conditioner, we had some trouble with our air conditioner a few weeks ago. So I decided I'll call the pe- people who uh, put it in. That makes sense, right? So I call them and they say, hang on. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Uh, your warranty has run out, says this lady. Okay. Well, that's all right. I still, you know, can I have a service call? That's all right. I pay for it. You know, don't let my last name fool you. And uh, she says, no, I'm sorry. We're only doing warranty calls for the next three weeks. It's 197 bazillion degrees. (laughs) We're going to be roasted in three weeks. It's just not going to work. It didn't seem to matter. I had no clout. There was no name recognition between this lady and me. She didn't really care what my mother would think about this mistreatment. (laughs) I just, you know, it's a very frustrating thing. I got the answer machine. I'm waiting online. I got everybody. Never, ever with the king of kings. You don't wait online. There is name recognition. Buddy is right. You can snuggle up to God at any time. He knows his kids. He singles us out in the crowd. It's very good to get things off our chest and fill him in on what hurts. But he knows. (laughs) He nods his head. I know, I know. He said, thanks for coming, thanks for sharing, thanks for talking, thanks for depending on me. I know all about you. You'll never be subsumed by even the world's most attractive religion with festivals and holidays and feast days and garments and all the rest, but um, lost in all this formality, there isn't the Abba-Father relationship. That'll never happen again. So I want to ask you a question. Are you tired of being a Christian? Of course not. (sighs) He knows my name. And we will remember. Could I tell you one thing as we close? Do you know the Lord Jesus who alone was dead and now is alive, is so alive He's still willing to come into the midst of needy people asking the same question. Do you wish to be made well? You know what the real malady is that plagues us? It isn't a a physical illness. You see believers who are right with God, who pass on as a result of a disease or whatever. I mean, it is well with their soul. (laughs) They're really going to be fine. So the physical afflictions of life are not really the biggest burden to bear. Our big problem is a sin sickness because that separates us from a God who is holy. 
So he still comes into the midst of sin-sick people and says, do you wish to be made well? Maybe we're like that guy. Yeah, well, sure, but not tonight. Yeah, well, I'm going to sow some more wild oats before. Well, sure, but there are all those hypocrites in the, you know. You're afraid. You're scared, aren't you, of being changed? And you will be transformed. But it'll be for the good. The Lord Jesus will see you no longer as a sin-sick person who owes him a debt. He'll see you as someone for whom he paid the debt. Paid in full, sin forgiven. The Lord Jesus will no longer see you as some stranger in a foreign land. He will adopt you into his forever family. He'll take you to heaven with him. That's a forever place. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, oh yeah, they'll be changed. He's a new creature. All the old stuff, you don't need that palate. You don't need that bed of sickness anymore. I'm talking about spiritual sickness. Old things have passed away. Behold, new has come. Let me encourage you to answer the Lord's question tonight, if you haven't. Do you wish to be made well? Do you wish to be made right with God by accepting the sacrifice of his son for you on the cross? I want to encourage you to do that tonight, if you haven't. Don't make excuses (laughs) anymore. Say, yes, I wish to be made well with a holy God with whom I must make do sooner or later. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, you have really done a magnificent job in helping us to be pointed to you as Messiah, Savior, Anointed One. We need not be confused about pretenders to the throne. You fulfilled prophecy and you showed your supremacy over even the premier false gods of this man's day, and our own. We know who you are, and we're so glad that you've opened our eyes to behold you as Savior, personal Savior. And now, Lord Jesus, would you open the hearts and minds of the few who are here tonight and who are not well with you. It's bad. It's a spiritual, diseased life. They ail from it. They're caught up in the atmosphere of it. And they're hopeless and can't, they're stuck. Would you rescue them by their invitation? Would you hear them as they say, come into my life? Lord Jesus, I believe you suffered, died for me, rose up from death. All this in order to obtain for me forgiveness of my sin. I am willing to be transformed so as to become more like you each day. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.